Welcome to the Black Cast. Very special conversation today. Joined by Matt Sinkowitz, who is one of the... Well, I don't know. You're not really an author. You've compiled something called the Comedy Studies Reader. But first, let's just say hi to Matt. Matt, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing all right, Christian. How are you? Good. So you and your partner in crime, Nick Marks, put this together. Previously, you guys did a Saturday Night Live and American TV is, is a previous book that uh, I don't have, but I have this uh, comedy studies reader. So explain sort of the back, your background, Nick's background, and how you've put together these books. We are professors. Uh, we're academics. Uh, both Nick and I did uh, our PhDs at the University of Wisconsin uh, in media and cultural studies. Uh, and we've got various interests. Uh, and when we, we write separately, it's kind of, it, there's a wide variety of stuff uh, that we do. But when we, uh, when we write about comedy together, when we write about anything together, we write about comedy. Uh, and particularly sort of uh, bridging together big philosophical, theoretical ideas about what make things, uh, what makes things funny uh, with really concrete examples from the TV we love, from the movies that we love, from the stand-ups that we love. Uh, and so the idea for this book, and it's geared largely at, uh, you know, sort of classroom adoption, as we say, right, right. for people to study uh, in university. Uh, nonetheless, I think we've, we've made a real effort to make it relatable uh, to not write entirely at that sort of high level using, you know, just Freudian terminology or whatever. We tried to sort of bring it down uh, where it's still smart, but you can understand it without, you know, staring at the page for an hour. Um, and the real point of it is to give you kind of tools and ways to think about, you know, the stuff you laugh at. Um, so, you know, we have it broken down, uh, like sort of into different theoretical perspectives, uh, psychoanalysis or, uh, uh, theories of the absurd or, uh, these sort of various different lenses. But in each case we take, uh, either through our own introductions, which we, we wrote or through examples that other people have written, uh, ways in which to, uh, look at really concrete examples. Like how can we understand the big bang theory through, uh, psychoanalytic ideas? How can we think of the Eric Andre show by thinking about comedy? And absurdity and we sort of bring the high and the low together and, and uh, good for students but I think uh, I think maybe there's there's a chance that uh, that people who aren't compelled to read it by their professors might also get something out of it <laughs> yeah for me I've flipped through it and you know there are passages that jump out at me and a lot of them are things we'll talk about you know the fact that early in the book is a big chunk on the naked gun which of course mm -hmm. is the film version of police squad both of which were very important in developing my sense of humor and also my sense of what is funny for people who are less familiar with the TV series. I mean, the TV series was sort of done in the wake of the the first airplane movie, so it's it's the same crowd there. The Abrams mm -hmm. brothers, the Zucker brothers, the Zucker Abrams, well, Zaz, Zucker. yeah, Zucker yeah. Abrams, and yeah, Zucker. exactly. So there's you know, and there's a lot to cover, and of course, you write a fair amount about SNL, and as I said, you did a, a mm -hmm. previous book on it, and that's actually how our paths crossed. Uh, you were putting something mm. together, and uh, you had some questions for me about doing the podcast and the radio show with Dennis Miller, who obviously mm -hmm. was a, a very, a very big part of SNL for, I guess, the five seasons that he was on mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, when you do Weekend Update, at least especially the way they did it back then, they carved out. 20 or so minutes of the show that was basically for you and you know you introduce some of the other characters and thing but it was really like you know you get a you get a chunk of the show entrusted to you you know and uh, you're the centerpiece right literally right it's it's the it's that middle piece that the rest of the show kind of is built around yeah absolutely and you know you get some you know incredibly 
memorable characters out of that. I mean, you know, this was when Kevin Nealon was doing it, but a lot of the best known Adam Sandler songs all happened on Weekend Update. You know, right. it was a perfect right, right. setting for him and Jimmy Fallon played guitar for a while too. So, you know, when when he was uh, he would be on with uh, Colin Quinn, you know, you kind of it's perfect for, you know, trying out characters that you don't need to build a sketch around. And sometimes mm -hmm. I think that, you know, they transition from one to the other. But what I want to start with, you know, sort of giving that overview. When you're growing up, what are some of the earliest things that are funny to you? Like, what do you decide? Like, oh, this is this makes me laugh. This is funny. I loved uh, I loved talking animals and puppetry. So, right. like, you know, Muppets. Uh, well, if I want to sound sort of like uh, 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 to be somewhat less embarrassed, I'll say the Muppets. But the reality is it's really Alf. Sure. Right? Like, <laughs> hey, like, I, I, Alf would kill me. Yeah, I loved Alf. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I certainly I was watching the, the Muppets before there was an Alf. And I think that was right. when you think about the Muppet segments on Sesame Street, you know, which it, at that time included like Kermit the Frog doing Sesame Street news. It was like nursery rhymes and, you know, Little Bo Peep had lost her sheep, things that I haven't seen in probably 35 years. But they stick with you because, you know, it was like, oh, look, Kermit's on TV. This is great. And that sort of sensibility that they had, you know, that the, the Henson people had, I think, goes a long way. And I mean, Alf was just you know, a guy in a suit that they they built a, yeah. a sitcom about. I mean, and well, yeah. I was maybe eight when Alf was was sort of at its peak, and I mean, it was absolute appointment viewing. Yeah. And looking back, yeah, it's just the guy in a suit, but the the mixture of the way in which the family is so banal and, and yeah. boring, combined with this this uh, you know outrageous character. As a kid, that killed me. It still kind of does. Like uh, yeah, uh, uh, Alf's uh, Alf's alternative name, uh, his name from on Melmac, uh, Gordon, Gordon Shumway. Shumway. Yeah. Right, like this is like this so it's so perfect, right? There's just something so like yeah. Uh, and then uh, uh, I'll quiz you. Do you remember what what uh, when uh, Alf had to say where he worked? Do you remember where he said he worked? I actually don't remember that. No. Gordon Shumway, Michigan Life and Casualty. Oh, that's hysterical. So, it's so it's so funny. Yeah. And even as like an eight year old, I couldn't like tell you exactly why him being an insurance agent was funny, but it was all about juxtaposition. Yeah, you knew right? you you absolutely knew that that was funny. And I'm a little bit older than you. I think I was like twelve when Alf was on, so that was that was in my sweet spot. I mean that yeah. and. Uh, a show that Alan Spencer created called Sledgehammer with David Raishi where he talked to his gun. Those were like two yeah, of my yeah. favorite comedies on television. And my mom hated both of them. That's how I knew that they were funny. You know? <laughs> no, that is right. I mean, yeah. No, Alf was absolutely appointment. And and uh, and the other thing would be would be Roger Rabbit. I mean, oh, that yeah, was my, sure. my favorite thing. And that uh, that stands the test of time in a different way, I think. I think that, that uh, there's real innovation in comedy there. But in both cases, I, I was really attracted to, like, A, silly silly talking things yeah right so it's very basic but to like uh, juxtaposition right roger rabbit is all about uh, this goofy character in a film noir right and there's there's something about just putting these two worlds and clashing them together that i loved as a kid and i still love today yeah and the interesting thing of course just to go back to al for a moment is that mm. anytime you Always. read you read anything about the production of alf and what the <laughs> actors felt about working on uh, on alf. max wright who played the dad just passed away recently yeah, yeah and he considered himself an actor with a capital a and it drove yeah. him crazy that the rest of the cast would try to be written out of scenes and wouldn't uh, you know really want to work the way that it was worked was the the there were like tunnels built all over the set so that you could have 
Alf. And, you know, they did not have a live studio audience because they would tape for so many hours. You know, they'd be <laughs> they'd be on set till three in the morning. It just sounds like the most miserable experience. But as a kid, you're just like, man, this is so funny. I love Alf. He cracks me up, you know. That's another great sort of uh, more more tragic comic juxtaposition, though. I kind of like that. Yeah. That, that that all this joy comes from probably just <laughs> a lot of, a lot of sweaty misery, right? Yeah, and I'm gonna get the quote wrong, but I remember reading it was from it was from an actor who had a recurring role as one of uh, Lynn's boyfriends. I think he might have even been mm -hmm. a puppeteer or something, and he was just writing about Max Wright losing his shit on set, basically <laughs> saying like that the women were in a rush to go shopping, you know, so it's a very, it's a very, it's a very old school viewpoint that they're, they're, they're in a rush to go shopping and not, and he's like, I'm here to work. And, right. it, and yet it all revolves around a, a, a three foot tall uh, puppet with a wart. Yeah, right. Exactly. If, if, if Max Wright asked for $1 more than they wanted to give him all of a sudden, there'd be a new debt, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's right. Very replaceable. That, yeah, I mean, that was a point in history where Valerie Harper had a sitcom and Valerie Harper uh, wanted more control and money and then all of a sudden in season two Valerie Harper's dead. Yeah, <laughs> so. just, just traded her out. No, <laughs> For Sandy Duncan and, you know, to possibly greater success. So, yeah, yeah th those are the kind of things that I liked. I mean, definitely as a kid, the, the Muppet show and the Muppet movies and, um, look, I'm very excited on Thursday. I'm taking my son to see the for the original Muppet movie. They're having one of those mm. one-day theater events and, Excellent. you know, I, yeah. I've chosen fairly carefully what I have him see and what he can see in the theater and you know he's previously seen uh, Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas and then there was a Fraggle Rock short after that they they had like a theatrical showing and I'm like all right let's see if let's see if he's ready for 90 minutes of the Muppets and is he gonna love the giant fork in yeah. the road as much as I did when I was a kid I mean that how, how old is he he's four Look, a lot of current content that uh, that is created for kids is uh, fairly annoying. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I, yeah think... I took I took my three year old to his first movie uh, this past Sunday, uh, Toy Story. Toy, was which... it Toy Story Four or the original? Four. Okay, yeah, because yeah. Toy Story he, he One, straight to four. Toy Story One, we're sort of scared of because there's the kid who blows up all the toys with the yeah. fireworks. There's always something terrifying yeah. in these in these Toy Story movies. Uh, there was less of it in Four. Yeah, um, I would say so. But there was there was some. There was like uh, the, the sort of uh, the uh, fantasy world in which uh, these two stuffed animals become like laser shooting <laughs> monsters. <laughs> yeah, and that like he was into it. He watched the whole thing, but that one. It was like yeah. on the edge, and I would watch the entire thing. Uh, this is a, uh, quite a digression, but have you seen Toy Story three? Yes, I have. So that has that scene where they are all about to die in the incinerator. Yes, and and it's like which is scary on its own, but then there's a minute where they just give up. Oh like, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> like I watched this whole movie thinking like that's the only like I you know he's three years old. I want to be careful here. Like uh, I'm pretty I'm a pretty loose parent on this stuff, and I'm a media like professor I, I right. watch everything he catches me watching it whatever but there's that scene in toy story 3 and it's fine as they're fighting to escape the incinerator but there's like 30 maybe a 30 maybe three seconds where woody is just like ah well shit it's over <laughs> yeah he's like well i had a good run <laughs> it's, it is watching that I, I did not have a kid at the time like all right that's really scary and then i think i don't I do not want my three-year-old watching this, uh, and that that there was nothing so like bleakly existential in this yeah. one, but there were some scary moments. Um, I do all, as an aside. I, I think that the Toy Story premise is played out. I think they've, I think they've run out well, of. Uh, 
Yeah, going to things. see going to see Toy Story four. There's this overwhelming feeling all the way throughout. There were some really good laughs. I thought it was fun. It had some heart. But the whole time, I'm just thinking, you know, I didn't need this. It ended really well in the third one, and at least it wasn't in the way where I'm like, I didn't need this, and you know, the jokes aren't funny, and I don't like the characters. I mean, I liked the new characters, so it was like, yeah, I didn't need it, but I I can. I can at least appreciate that they still put some effort into it because you could have probably, I don't know what, put yeah. half as much effort into it and made almost and as much money. Office. Yeah, exactly. No, that's, so. that's right. Yeah, no, the, the writing is still fairly sharp in terms of like the micro stuff. But how many times can it be hard for small things to do big things? Yeah. Right? That's like that's that's all it comes down to. Right. Is Woody is very small and he has yeah. to get on top of a very tall thing. And it's just kind of over yeah. and over. Um and uh, it does it does make you think like, well, how how are we going to come up with the new thing to make four of, if we you know make twelve of of this right. same premise? Yeah, exactly. And um, they're always trying to figure out how to make more of something that already made money. Works. I mean, I'm a huge you know huge comic book nerd, and you know mm. Marvel just a couple weekends ago at Comic Con just were like, yeah, here's here's like seven projects that are going to come out over the next two years, but uh, you know, enjoy. <laughs> and yeah, me, no, I'm like, right. sure, most of it sounds good, but in any case, uh, sort of talking about Toy Story is just sort of reminiscent of you know bringing the Muppets into it and things that really yeah. sort of creates a sensibility for what's funny as as a kid, which I think is really important. I had an older brother who's five years older than me, and I think that was very helpful and sort of finding my way in what I actually thought was funny. And as I referenced a moment ago, my mom appreciated some things that were funny, but really the, her contribution to my development was uh, we had a VCR before anybody else we knew because mm. she wanted to record Star Trek at night at midnight so she could try and mm. try and get all the episodes. So I watched that at a young age. But when I started to realize, I'm like, oh, I, I think these things are funny, like like novelty songs like Weird Al Yankovic, but also the syndicated Dr. Demento radio show. I was just like, oh, these songs are like regular songs, but they changed the words. So, you know, now mm -hmm. it's about food or it's, you know, whatever. And you know, that's when you start to realize like, oh, okay, so, you know, whatever my parents think is funny. My parents think MASH is funny and I don't understand how that's funny, no. you know. No, I remember being so confused by MASH for so long yeah. and I never actually went back and figured it out. Yeah. Like, uh, it's, I watched I think the syndication on like, on like UHF after right. school Yeah, and I would watch it. And like I did not understand. I, I mean, I'm sure you know they, the jokes make sense now. But there was you, you talked about being sort of trained into what is funny. Yeah, uh, it was so culturally, uh, you know, sort of pervasive that Mash is like that's the funny show, and everybody would say it. And even though I didn't understand a single reference, I probably watched, I don't know, 150 episodes of Mash. Yeah, I mean, it was on a lot. And you know, it's funny. My wife talks about she has this still to this day she has this kind of visceral reaction when she hears that theme song she knows it's time to turn the tv off because you know just it just doesn't seem funny and then it's like you know when I was a little bit older I'm like wait they're in a war and you just don't even understand that I think at first and you're like what yes. are they making jokes it, it, it's, about it's, it's it's kind of inscrutable I mean yeah. also the, the song a is extremely uh, extremely like sad sounding, and you know the name of the song. Yeah, suicide is painless. Because in the yeah. film version, it has in the film version it has lyrics. It has lyrics. And, in the, so in if, the if it's not enough of a downer oh. to hear the instrumental TV version, yeah, of course. So I mean, 
something so odd, but yet I was I was told it was funny, and yeah. I, I was committed to watching it and telling people it was funny, <laughs> I, uh, but with with no evidence. Like I, yeah. I could I could mar- I could marshal nothing to back up this claim, but I held it very. It was a strong conviction until I was. Uh, well, actually, kind of still is, honestly. Right. Yeah. And you know, look, when when I was a kid, all these sitcoms were on in syndicated reruns in the afternoon, and. I, I don't think I I knew why Three's Company was supposed to be funny, but it's like, well, the people oh, are laughing, so it, it seems... They were silly, though. Yeah, it's right? true. They were silly in a visual way, yeah. right? Suzanne Somers like, is very, like, oh, yeah, bouncy, I, and, and you could... Yeah, and Mr. Farley is, like, you know, wears a funny yeah, shirt. That's right, once, once they added Don Knotts, it was it was definitely a little bit more uh, kid-friendly. But that was that's the point, is that, like, you understood that it was funny with MASH. You're like, I still don't understand what's going on. Nope. <laughs> but, no, absolutely not. Yeah, and I don't know. So I think just, uh, and I think MASH is a little bit of a generational thing. I think people a little bit older have the reverence for it. And I, you know, I don't understand how that comedy goes the way it does. And of course, lasts longer than the actual Korean War. But I mean, there's a satire there, though, yeah. right? And and it's one that like we can sort of appreciate academically. Absolutely, or sort of like, I could certainly appreciate yeah. it now. But you know, it took, but, it, but took into, visceral, it took me it took me in right. getting into my forties to really think like, oh, okay, I guess I, I guess I can get it. But well, and it's super confusing that it's in Korea. If you're if because if you're you're like I, I didn't even know if the Korean War existed, right? So yeah. Vietnam was what I kind of assumed. And anyway, yeah. so you know, these are the sort of things that I like. And one, you know, having the advent of a of a VCR, I was able to record Saturday Night Live. And I kind of remember the first time that I saw because my brother would want to watch it. And the first time that I, I remember seeing it, it was the it was what they call the the Elvis season. It was the 1984-1985 season. So that's the one where you had Martin Short and Billy Crystal and Harry Shearer was back yeah. and Christopher yeah, yeah, Guest. Yeah. You know, it was that cast and it was uh, Christopher Reeve was guest hosting. And I remember, I don't remember the sketches, but I knew I'm like, oh my God, that Superman is, you know, the host. And so I was excited for that reason. And I didn't start watching it more regularly until later, but I would see it sort of intermittently. And... That was one of those things that I was just like, all right. And it's funny because that and the HBO series, not necessarily the news, are literally how I got the majority of my information on what was going on in the late '80s. You know, I think I was I was more up to date than the usual than the average ten year old because of what the subject matter was on those shows. Mm-hmm. I think to this day, even more so, that's how a lot of people get information is from like The Daily Show, and you know. It, you know, even you go back even 10, 15 years, it's like the monologues on the late night shows. It's like, oh, yeah, I know what's up because I because I watch Carson or Leno or Letterman or whatever. And, you know, I, I always thought that the the sketches, probably the broader ones are the ones that I like the most. I, I think uh, Toons is the driving cat continues to just be a favorite <laughs> because it's just such a stupid idea, mm-hmm. you know, and the fact that people will get back in the car with Toons as the driving cat, <laughs> even though he doesn't know how to drive, it, you know, it just mm. struck me as so funny. And I think that was 1989. And mm-hmm. there was that. And just sort of in, in the same sweet spot, that's when the Kids in the Hall sketch show started 
on HBO and uh, in it was I guess co-produced with the CBC. So there were those things, and and neither my parent my parents both very actively disliked the kids in the hall. So, uh, oh, huh, what my, didn't they like about it? My dad didn't like the way that they talked to their parents, and I'm like, oh, you know, oh. they're all the same age, right? Like he's not like uh. Bruce McCullough is not really a ten year old. He's like, it, you know, in the next sketch, he's the dad, and you know, Kevin McDonald. Mm-hmm. So that was the thing that really bothered him, and the just the the thing that reinforced that I was going to find my own way when it came to comedy was the fact that my mom just flat out didn't think anything about Monty Python's Flying Circus was funny, and oh, she didn't think the movies yeah. were funny. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to just we're going to disagree on that. You That's know? an extra level. Yeah. The, the the Flying Circus I can see in, in that it, it can it, it sometimes is hard to. I mean, sometimes not, but often, yeah. often they, they don't hang together very well, and like the the premises can be abstract, and and it's too short to let them sort of play out. But yeah, I mean, Holy Grail is not difficult, right? right? And yeah, and I would say that a, a, a lot of the sketches from Flying Circus get isolated and performed either on records. You know, I would have the cassettes right. of of a lot of these sketches, and then they, you know, they're also like live at the Hollywood Bowl and some other. Uh, uh, there was one called the Now for something completely different where they did some. Of these sketches, so their best-known sketches pulled from that. I, I think it's accurate. I think there's a lot of it that you know. Even now, it's just so weird and and inaccessible that you know. I, like as a kid, I hated the Terry Gilliam uh, animated yeah, interstitials, yeah. but now yeah. I watch them. I'm like, these are this is crazy. All the you know, like, and how yeah, long yeah. did that take to make in 1969? You know, I mean, to actually. No, I, I had the same experience. Yeah. I remember uh, having a vague sense they were cool, but like really. Uh, having no sense as to what it would have to do with the comedy show. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's as though there was a dramatic sort of tragic monologue in the middle of a yeah. comedy show, um, which kind of sort of, I mean, they, they, they can be funny, uh, but, but, you know, uh, there's a broader point that the, the whole thing is art, right? And that uh, yeah. uh, different kinds of art can juxtapose in interesting ways. But yeah, as a kid, I do remember watching those and thinking they were kind of gross yeah. and super uh, disruptive to uh, the jokes. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, but then, of course, they were a little racy because there would be like nude women in them. And because it was art, you know, they when I first saw Monty Python's Flying Circus, they were showing it on MTV at like midnight or something. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they weren't I I don't even know that I think it was too expensive to blur anything out at that point. You know, so (laughs) I was just like, all right, well, I guess that's going to help. That's going to help me want to tune in. And, you know, it just sort of all goes from there, you know, finding stand-up comedy and, you know, getting it back to SNL. The funny thing about working with Dennis Miller for the better part of 15 years now is the fact that he was the guy who stood out. I'm like, this guy's really funny. And his yeah. his comedy specials, but especially his off-white album, comedy album, I mean... I to this day I, I I when I'm doing the podcast with Dennis I I feign that I don't remember the bits but I I'm like oh I could actually you know go through this and I'm like hey didn't you have a used to have a joke about the International House of Pancakes but of course I mean I I remember the you know your syrup, right. your syrup steward will come over and all these things so mm-hmm. you know and I guess that's just sort of taking it all in for me, you know, and how I find things funny. But when you do these sort of collections and, and, you know, because you did that SNL book, I specifically wanted to kind of talk about 
Uh, talk a little bit about the importance of SNL when you kind of analyze it. Of course, it's a very funny show for most of the seasons. You know, there's certainly exceptions, yeah. definite exceptions. <laughs> but talk a little bit about it in terms of, you know, if you were going to have it as part of like a, a media studies, what were what would be yeah. the, the most important things you would focus on about a show like Saturday Night Live in particular? Yeah, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about SNL is that it keeps one thing constant when everything else changes. Right. So yeah. you have this this show that comes back every year and, and the format is like remarkably consistent. Right. You know, little things come in and out. But like, uh, you know, it's it's basically uh, uh, following its its blueprint from day one with, you know, relatively little disruption. Uh, and so one of the great things to use SNL for is say, all right, we are going to look at how this thing changed about uh, society, about the media industry, uh, about politics or, or whatever the case might be. And you can watch, you know, sort of SNL as this sort of more or less uh, static form uh, take on this, this thing. So, you know, how are women uh, uh, participating in comedy in American culture? Well, you can kind of cut out all of the other variables and just sort of watch the development from, uh, you know, uh, Gilda Radner to uh, Kristen Wiig or whatever the yeah, case sure. might be. And, you know, it, 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 it becomes a great way to have that discussion and it actually points you to things that you want to uh, uh, sort of uh, follow up on. Uh, there's references in there to politics, to events in the past, and you can sort of see the ways in which they're being dealt with. Uh, so to me, that's the, the core of it. You know, if you want to talk about, you know, how has the television industry changed? How has broadcast changed, right? With the advent of cable, with the advent of streaming, with the uh, uh, sort of glut of content we have now. Well, you can kind of look at the comedy of SNL from the 1970s, 1980s, when uh, uh, you could uh, appeal to a broader audience, right, uh, who weren't yeah. so... Uh, being hailed by a thousand different uh, shows and then you know look at that comedy and look at it today and see okay have the appeals changed uh, is the type of humor different how much of that can you attribute uh, to the fact that in 1980 there's not much to do in terms of media on a Saturday night at least comparatively whereas today there, there's too much right you go insane with all, all, all that there is and you can see how the jokes uh, have changed how uh, you know does it become more topically engaged all these sort of different uh, evolutions uh, can really be traced out nicely with that one show. Yeah, and I think it obviously is great if you're to follow it really closely. You can look at it in terms of it being a, a very accurate barometer of the way the country felt about things. I mean, you know, it, it coming in the way, you know, what, right after Watergate. I don't know exactly right. the time difference. I'm, <laughs> it's a little bit well, of a... 75, you're yeah, in the heart so, of... So, yeah. Exactly. So it's, you know, and you got Gerald Ford and, uh, you know, Chevy Chase with literally no makeup is, is playing the president falling down on TV and you know, I think that that appeals to sort of the the broader aspect of it. And then when you dig really deep for some of the crazier, darker Michael O'Donohue sketches There's, and stuff, yeah, I mean, yeah, that that yeah, we've got a chapter in there on that. I mean, it's just, um, I mean, it's not completely without current current comparison, right? There are occasional uh, digital shorts which are super abstract and, yeah. and can be can be a little bit dark, but there is nothing like the the sort of uh, body of of art films, essentially the the Michael O'Donoghue uh, these these you know extremely strange, often dark, you know, yeah. uh, about self mutilation and these right. different things, and it it tells you also sort of what the attitude towards comedy was, right? Comedy as important avant garde art um, was like you know fairly main mainstream sort of perspective in the 1970s, at least as, as evidenced by the willingness to kind of juxtapose them. Um, and then if you look at the 80s, you don't see any of that. That sort of darkness, uh, uh, at least, uh, you know, I can't think of anything that sort of parallels to it. Mm -hmm. And it, it tells you a little bit about how people 
sort of think about comedy. Right. I mean, I think it's a, it's a completely different it's a different aesthetic. It's a completely different feel for the '80s incarnation of SNL because you had this incredible breakout star in Eddie Murphy, you know, and you had a little bit more of an ensemble early on where. Sure, uh, Belushi and Aykroyd really stood out a little bit more. But then, you know, especially once they added Bill Murray, you know, you had you had that. But when you think about the fact that, you know, in the 80s, it was like, well, what can we get Eddie in? And to yeah. a little bit, it, you know, it, it's it's funny to think about now, but Joe Piscopo was, it, you know, they weren't number one and number two, but it was number one was it was Eddie, and then there were a lot of empty slots, and then you know, right around like eight or nine was Joe Piscopo, you know, and mm-hmm. everything else, you know, very talented, very funny comedic actors like Tim Kazarinsky. People forget that Julie Louis Dreyfus mm-hmm. was on the show for as many years yeah. as she was, and you know, without quite as much to do, but. You really just sort of it was it's felt at least me watching them as reruns, you know, when comedy when I first got Comedy Central and I could actually finally see these episodes from the 80s, you felt like, all right, it's it's not a subversive. They're definitely it's definitely trying to be it's trying to appeal to an even broader audience, you know, I mean, well, it's 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 dropping some of the countercultural yeah. pretensions. Right. right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that. That, that, that that's absolutely central to it. And yeah, I mean, Joe Piscopo, what a like what a what a sort of uh uh, a marker of the times. There's a bar on the corner from my house. Uh, it's like not your average Joe's, something like that. Right. And it's got like paintings of all of the like fa- various famous Joes. Right. So it's got it's got Joe Perry from Aerosmith because I'm in Boston. Yeah, it's got of course. Bazooka Joe. Uh, you know, you name it. But the biggest Joe is Joe Piscopo. <laughs> It is this giant visage of Joe Piscopo, and it just tells you exactly like when that was created, right? Yeah. Like when when that image was was done, right? Uh, yeah. This is from the, the the early '80s, right? But without without exception, and he was big enough that he yeah. was like the most famous Joe in America. <laughs> you had to, you had to put put him bigger. This Joe Montana, yeah. you name it, every other oh, Joe. That's funny. But, and it's it's giant. It's like the center the center stage goes to Joe Piscopo. Yeah. Um, and it was yeah. I mean, it does go to the idea that this was not a countercultural side cultural sort of thing at all. I mean, it was very mainstream. Uh, Eddie Murphy, you're right, 100 percent is the better example of it. But but even even a Joe Piscopo, nearly forgotten. Yeah. Um, a- absolutely, sort of a mainstream star. And his, you know, look, I th- his Frank Sinatra and Phil Hartman's Frank Sinatra are very different, and they're both very yeah, funny. Yeah. Uh, Joe's is a little bit more reverential. I, lo- I love the Sinatra group, angry, you know, like ca- can't understand Chris Rock as Luther Campbell from Two Live Crew, <laughs> and Jen Hooks was there as, as Sinead O'Connor. You know, just that sort of like... You know that that it's a little bit more mean spirited. So probably by the time that that came along, that was that was more my vibe. But when you watch them, just from you know just appreciating the the skill that goes into it, they're both very different. They're both great. But yeah, I mean, just the fact that they had Eddie Murphy was just crazy. I mean, to the the extent that I referenced that Elvis season, you kind of needed yeah. these three huge stars to replace Eddie Murphy. Basically, you know, you needed you right. needed Martin yeah. Short and Billy Crystal, and you still didn't quite get it. You know. So, no, yeah, that's and, right. It would, you can't 
Quillette. I mean, yeah. absolutely uh, a comedy star like we have never seen. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it's hard to break out in that way ever again because of, you know, network TV is not what it was. And, you know, yeah, there's no venue. Yeah. There's no venue where, where the audience is not is not fractured uh, uh, beyond that being a possibility. Yeah. And for me, SNL sort of, you know, it, it, there's the first year where Lorne Michaels is back, which is Dennis's first year. And that's just the anomaly of television the year that robert downey jr and anthony michael hall and randy quaid and joan cusack were all cast members and you know to the to the extent that at the end of that season they had a fire and lauren just grabs lovitz and (laughs) lets everyone else burn essentially uh but i do think that the year after that when they added dana carvey and phil hartman there was sort of that spirit of the original show and that's really what i grow up with is that cast so that's kind of you know a lot more subversive again i think that at Mm -hmm. that point you know you're already a term and a half of of the reagan administration so i think you have people that are rebelling a little bit more whereas like the you know the dick ebersole snl is, is a little bit more of you know just like hey everything's good we're all happy right now you know um mm. so i mean we could break down the different casts and all that but one of the things that i know is in your book is sort of mm. how you can look at snl and it's very interesting to kind of look at the show in we were talking about when you can get a barometer for what's going on in the country talk a little bit about what that show was like when it came back after 9 11 yeah, so that's that's uh, something that I wrote for 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 the uh, book that you're referring to, and uh, yeah, it's a fascinating way to kind of look at the way that comedy played that sort of post 9/11 role, right? Um, and you know, one thing interesting to note, uh, SNL was was uh, in the, the sort of early 2000s, the pre the pre 9/11 moment. Um, you know, there was not a lot of biting political commentary right. going on in that show. Uh, we think of it now as, I mean, God, I, I don't know what you think of the current seasons. Um, it's a lot of just uh, some rather stenographic uh, recreations of various political events. It's very common today. Yeah, uh, that was n- not the case in 2000, really. I mean, they they they'd have Rudy Giuliani on, but it would be just about his uh, mistresses and whatnot. Yeah, um, and the idea of sort of like. I don't know, attacking policy or something in SNL was really not not in favor. Um, so you had a lot of like real silliness. There was some great stuff, but um, it was not that political a show. Uh, and then, of course, there's 9-11, and then there is, uh, you know, the, the time TV stands still, right? And the immediate aftermath of 9-11, um, you know, so the immediate, immediate aftermath, right? You've got everybody goes non-commercial. It's basically a CNN wall-to-wall uh, kind of coverage all over the place. Uh, and then there's that that waiting period, right, where uh, the shows that are supposed to be funny, right, what are they going to do with this? When is it okay to be funny? Uh, and, you know, you get a little break from SNL, and then eventually they come back, and they come back with the most kind of somber uh, uh, sort of uh, quite quite good, as it would get Paul Simon singing a tribute yeah. to the, uh, the, the first responders. Uh, totally unfunny opening, right, uh, with, with no uh, – intentionally so. Um, and, you know, you, you're still – if you're watching it, you're kind of wondering, all right, like, is this a comedy show? And there's this uh, famous moment, you, you, you may remember, yeah, uh, do, to yeah. actually kick off the funny part of the show, right? Uh, Lauren comes out and he, he asks, uh, you know, uh, America's mayor, right, Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, yeah. is it okay for us to be funny? Giuliani responds, well, why start now? Yeah. Right, a little, <laughs> a little knock on it. It's a good joke, good solid Very uh, good joke. joke. 
it's the first laugh, you know, for you it's know, the first post nine eleven laugh. And yeah, 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 exactly. And and oh, I think that's why it's so important. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think the show is is largely a lot sillier right away, you know, and it, it definitely finds its voice. I think there was probably a little fear early on. I don't mean literal fear, but just sort of like, oh, how do we portray the president? You know, he is oh, funny. Yeah. And I think that they, they get a good balance for it because, you know, we had the great in 2000 the you know and they would always bring Jim Downey back who used to share an office with Bill Murray in 1976 and he would write all the political sketches up until very recently actually he would write the debate so the great Al Gore George W Bush uh, debate sketches were all written by Jim Downey. So, you know, the strategery and the lockbox and, you know, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. So you had this George Bush character who was actually very funny, but you also were just like, yeah, but he's this is also the guy with the megaphone down at Ground Zero that people yeah. are rallying around right now. But, you know, politics being politics, it didn't take long to uh, be able to get away from that. No, it didn't. I mean, you get the first the first few episodes back. Um, uh, there's a lot of of like really, I mean, uh, you know, sketches. Uh, it's like a Horatio sketch about like having sex with a mermaid kind of right. thing, right? Like, <laughs> sure. Really, very hard to spin as political. And then they would they would pause every so often uh, to to uh, let you remember that they're thinking about the the tragedy, right? Yeah. So there'd be a pause in the middle of weekend update with a uh, you know donate uh, to to this uh you know first responders fund or something uh, and they would kind of do that of course they phase that out and eventually uh you know they do start turning to uh, what you might call a very light critical politics and the first real target is the uh is sort of jingoism right yeah. it's a combination there there are, are uh jokes about uh really light jokes where you know will ferrell uh doesn't just come in with a a uh flag pin right but he's got like uh, you know like flag a flag speedo Right. Oh, yeah, but, that's right. <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, it's making fun of sort of the reaction, the jingoism. There's also some. There's a really good bit about the uh, the Oscars and sort of the uh, performative uh, performative mourning that people were doing. And maybe it's the Grammys. I forget. But some uh, there's like a red carpet show, and it's it's referencing the fact that people that year at these red carpet events were kind of a little bit less glamorous dressed. But right. they've got celebrities just coming in like trash bags. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of like taking this like, you know, taking uh, the, the I guess the first target becomes sort of people's reactions. Yeah. Right. They don't they certainly don't make jokes about the actual event, uh, but they do start getting comfortable making fun of the ways in which people are coping with the event, which, of course, is a coping mechanism in and of itself. Yeah, and I think that, you know, they're able to get into a, a, a balance that I, I think definitely works. And then, of course, once you have a war that people start to turn against and then you have another presidential election just a few years later, I, I think it, it, it kind of finds it, its its footing again. And, you know, something that you referenced earlier, it, it's a show that I, I will always TiVo, although now you can just find it on Hulu. And I, I don't always watch it right away. But here on the West Coast, they've started showing it at 8:30, so it's on live. Oh, so yeah, yeah, that right. actually works that out. Nice. That works out really well because I'll get I'll get my kids to bed, and I'm like, you know, what, let me see a little bit. And mm -hmm. let's put it this way: it works a lot better as an 8:30 show than an 11:30 show. Where you're like, wait, why am I still up? You know? Yeah. Well, and, which is damn 
coming. Yeah, that, that I makes think there. Uh, yeah, and I think there's there's still good performers. I think that you know every once in a while you'll have a great performer, performer, somebody like Bill Hader, and you know then they move on. But you'll you'll always find people who are able to you know I think shine. I think that the biggest part for me watching that show is I just do not get the music anymore. <laughs> and I'm just yeah. like, oh, I became that guy. You know, I yeah. mean, like twice a year, I'm like, oh, that's cool that, you know, like, I'm not even like a huge Foo Fighters fan, but I'm like, I know, I know what but, that you know sounds like. Yeah, I yeah. know what that sounds yeah. like. That's going to be great. You know, and it's a lot of like, I, I don't, I don't know what this is, you know, and it's fine, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, which, which could be very good. Yeah. We're, we're, we are old men at this point. Yeah, right. And, uh, exactly. If they were appealing to us, it really would be fully uh, uh, sort of betraying the, uh, the original concept of the show. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, this happens. It also goes in cycles, right? And, and I'm not even so convinced that it goes in cycles of quality, but it certainly goes in cycles of sensibility. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it might just not be where you are now. I mean, I, yeah. I, I've, I've had trouble post Lonely Island, if I'm being honest. Sure. No, I, I, I agree with that. I think that there there's still a good silly presence, you know, and, and Dennis Miller himself has talked kind of about like, you know, when he doesn't watch it that much. His son was an intern there at one point, so he watched it more. That's within the last decade. I forget exactly when that was. But, you know, when he does watch it, sometimes he'll see stuff that's good. But a lot of times he's like, yeah, but they're not making the show for me anymore. You know, he's, right. he's fully yeah. aware that that's not what they're appealing to. And I had somebody, it was somebody from Second City who just kind of explained what the show is it's it's a mediocre restaurant in an amazing neighborhood so people will always go back to it and even when it's not particularly good you're like it's just good enough that i think i'll come back maybe i won't come back next week but i you know people swear off on it and you know then something like you know like lazy sunday happens you referenced the yeah. you know and and it's it's interesting where because that was what like 35 years into the show all of a sudden right. there's this new component to it because that was you know obviously none of us knew what youtube was at that point right. and you know some of us had seen it the night of but then everybody starts talking about it over the next week so it's well it's, and, and that's important right it's still yeah. one of our our last uh possibilities to have a, a uh, moment of comedy that a large section of our society can sort of enjoy together. Yeah. Right. Com comedy is a very fractured uh, form. I guess there's, there's sort of the network sitcoms, if you want to call those. I mean, they're comedies, but but they're also something else. Right. Um, yeah. in, in terms of like creating that moment that a good sort of critical mass of people can all laugh at the same thing and talk about it the next day, that's still our best crack at it. Right. And so it will always be. Um, uh, as long as it's there, because nothing's coming up to catch it, right? Because you just can't build that kind of audience anymore. Yeah, it, it will. It will play, I think, a, a, an important role, and there will be moments, right? There, you know, the, where where things do do come alive from it. Uh, be it a lazy Sunday or Sarah Palin or these different yeah. things that sort of get rolling. Because there's really nowhere else for them to be. I mean, I guess like you know, a viral video here. And there or whatever but it's really in terms of like crafted comedy it's what you have yeah exactly and i i think that the interesting thing is to sort of see you know some of the the difference in tone now versus even when i was a kid but then of course from the earliest seasons and one of the things i'm kind of wondering and I, i've talked to friends who are comedians whether they be writers or, or stand-ups and just sort of negotiating what seems like a really tricky time for comedy right now. Yeah. Because right. you want to be inclusionary and, you know, you don't want people to feel like, you know, we're making fun of you because you're this way. And we're making fun of everyone who's this way. But at the same time, you also want to be true to the idea of comedy, which is, you, you know, look, you don't 
you, you know, somebody like somebody like Caitlyn Jenner. There's a lot of funny things about Caitlyn Jenner. You can you can still also say like you right. know this is brave, this is important, and all that. But then you know she s- sounds the way she sounds. You know, so right. you can still do impressions. And you know when she's on South Park, she always drives a car and like murders people because mm-hmm. th- it's a thing yep. that happens. So right. it, and what are you finding now? Because are do you teach? Undergraduates, do you teach graduate students, or what age sort of are you speaking to? Primarily advanced undergraduates. Right. I do. You know, I've got a I've got a, a graduate student doing a, a dissertation on stand up from the seventies. I've got some mix, but but my my pulse the, the I'm I'm much closer to the pulse of the uh, of the undergraduates for sure. Yeah, and and I feel like you know, look, it's very easy for uh, old men like me to make fun of that generation because of the way that they grew up. But you know, I probably grew up a little bit more snowflakey than even they did. In all honesty, the way that you know, you know, my my mom was very positive. I was talking about her before in terms of, you know, not her sense of humor, but, you know, very encouraging. And, you know, and if there was a problem at school, she would be the, you know, she'd be down there to march down and talk to the principal, you know, that level that, you know, so I think that kids are probably stronger than I was at their age, like college age kids, you know, they're probably Mm -hmm. better able to handle themselves. But what are are your thoughts and sort of like, you know, would you show them something? I I don't even know if you show clips. And are you ever worried? It's it's, it's a struggle. Yeah. Are you worried, like, are they going to see this and think, oh, you know, if I showed this even five years ago, everybody would be okay with it. But now I don't know. Chappelle Chappelle is like the, you know, if you you want to do something on, uh, you know, contemporary, you know, the post, uh, you know, uh, this millennium uh, comedy, you got to show Chappelle, right? But like. It's yeah, a I mean the, the minefield, you know, a minefield and a the, minefield. The blind Klansman who Klansman, is black, right. one of the oh, literally horrible. one of the funniest things I've ever seen. But it's just like I've never been, <laughs> I've never been comfortable getting near the N word. But I, when I see Dave Chappelle use it like that, and you know Eddie Murphy, and of course Richard Pryor, you're like, yeah, they're using it in a way that that I'm okay laughing. But now if I'm in a room, especially in like an no, academic setting, I'd be like. I, I don't know if I can laugh at this. And is that sort of oh. what you run into? Oh, 100%. I yeah. mean, you know, so it, it happens even in, I mean, that, that, that's sort of like a really wet, difficult one. I mean, it's all, I mean, I, I think a, way back, you know, I'll, I'll teach classes uh, on sort of early film history and like just showing the jazz singer is like almost oh, yeah. impossible. Uh, Birth of a Nation is completely impossible, but of course you cannot understand American uh, cinema or media history without these things. And uh, I often find myself like I, I try to read this class and sometimes I will just take those clips out. I don't think that I think that they're going to focus on the wrong thing and I'll yeah. describe it. Uh, when it comes to the comedy, I think the biggest problem with that is that, you know, I think you can still get away with showing things, but I think that with comedy in particular, it's a problem because the nature of comedy, what makes comedy is that it has multiple interpretations that some people are going to get it. Some people aren't going to get it. Some people are going to get it the totally wrong way. And that's what makes it funny for the people who get it the quote unquote right way, right? The way that the the joke is intended. Um, and that's, that's the playfulness of it that's so important and is that's less true of like a good drama, right? A uh, good drama doesn't need there to be sort of this somewhat uh, sort of open-ended nature to it that the jokes require in order to really work. So I think you can show a lot of this stuff in a classroom, but you have to tell people what it means beforehand, right? Right. So, 
And that's a problem because that's like that's stepping on the joke. Right. And they're not experiencing it the way that an audience naturally would. Right. And that's where you get into the the territory with characters like Archie Bunker and Eric Cartman, where the, yes. the joke yes. is how stupid they are. But also you could you be laughing. That. You could definitely be laughing for the wrong reasons. You know, you could be 100%. laughing because like, yeah, what Archie is saying is right about the neighborhood and how it's not, you know, and, yeah. you know, they I don't know if you saw it, but they they did this a couple months ago. They they did the live event where they did an episode of All in the Family and an episode of the Jeffersons. And Woody Harrelson? Yeah, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, yeah. yeah which I love, I, love Woody, I love Woody Harrelson, but, uh, you know, it was, I, I didn't like the choice that whomever made that he was basically doing an impression of Carol Connor. I think some of the actors were great. I think Jamie Foxx's George Jefferson in both half hours was great, but the reason I'm bringing it up is they used the scripts from episodes from the 70s and there w there were lines that had the n-word in it from the jeffersons and they bleeped it which of course mm. w was not what would have happened on network television no. you know, 40 plus years ago and it's it's so strange to think look i think in a lot of ways it's it's good that we're able to be more sensitive now. You know, I mean, just to it always goes back to SNL to me because it, it covers such a wide range. I mean, there are those Uncle Roy sketches where Buck Henry is like taking pictures. Uh, you know, Lorraine Newman and Gilda Radner are supposed to be little girls, like I don't know, eight or nine. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. he's a child molester, and the comedy all comes right. from the fact that he's a child molester. And I can't say that those sketches are unfunny, but you can understand now why you're like, well, here's the problem with those sketches, and then dealing with race. You know, it, it's it, it's like a white guy who grew up in the rural suburbs of New York. I'm not going to pretend to understand, you know, w w to tell people like, well, you should be OK with a sketch that is racial right. in tone. You know, I'm just like, OK, well, I, I'm going to laugh at it, but I shouldn't expect anybody else to do it. And it, it's so tricky. But the reason why I bring all that up is just it's so different that you can't take a script from 1974 and act it out on primetime television without making changes and i'm not even right. saying that it's it, that it's wrong to bleep the n-word on network television now it's just the fact is that it's that it's necessary whether you agree with it or not and sort of mm -hmm. wanted to get your thoughts on kind of that level of change where it's you know and, and look a, a movie like blazing saddles is, is a perfect example mm -hmm. of like well not only could you not make it now i wonder if you'd show it on you know broadcast or you know like television with commercials you know the, whatever like tbs you know would you show it on TBS? no i don't I, yeah i don't think so yeah I, mean, I, I don't think you would um you know i mean this is uh you know, the sort of two ways of going at it from a general cultural perspective i mean mores change right um uh, what, what was what was acceptable wasn't things come in and out and to me i mean you know the fact that that has adjusted on its you know if we sort of acknowledge that as an adjustment and um don't treat it as though it was uh, necessarily a, a discovered eternal truth but it's just sort of uh, you know the way that, that the world has developed no longer can we, can we use that language this this i think is is just natural evolution uh, I think in terms of uh, trying to think about comedy historically, the, the erasure of it is a problem, right? Um, it, it, there are some ways in which we should just confront these things, and I guess you can't do that by having that language on network TV. Yeah. Um, but there, there's something that's sort of bothersome about that. And as, in, uh, as somebody who teaches this, it's extremely bothersome uh, to the extent that these contradictions and these things that make us uncomfortable, like they tell us a lot about where we come from. They give us opportunities to think about the morality of 
of uh, of what we do in this moment, and uh, to not give particularly students the opportunity to kind of grapple with it and work through it, I think is a problem. And I find myself falling into that because I think I have to. Um, you know, if if I'm going to show uh, all in the family, I will just say, you know, uh, there are a lot of ways people understood this in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, the dominant reading is that uh, you're laughing at the racist Archie Bunker, not with him, and uh, you you know the 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 uh, way in which it's best to understand this is through that lens. And then I just kind of like save the trouble. Right? Yeah, of, of right, people of saying that, that I showed a racist TV show. Um, however, I can say on my campus, I know there's somebody who uses all in the family just as a general 1970s like culture thing. She will only show the song at the beginning. And oh. she will only, <laughs> only show the song at the beginning because it like kind of indicates the class yeah. stuff and then she talks through it. Whereas I, I, I show the whole episode yeah. and I am taking a risk. You know? Yeah. No, There's no question. Definitely. And, you know, obviously, and again, that's another show that I kind of understood as a kid was supposed to be funny, but I, I didn't realize didn't just how yeah, in-depth the comedy was until I was older because Archie is 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 a joke, but also so is Meathead, the fact that he's, you know, this caricature of a liberal, but of course he doesn't have... the dog, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, and of course he doesn't have a job, you know, and so it's, it, it's like, oh, you could actually really appeal to so much of, of such a wide segment of the population and mm. you know i know that they they tried to kind of do this when when roseanne was rebooted and of course you know roseanne being roseanne she can't uh, keep herself out of trouble so having nothing to do with the quality of the show i think we're at a time where it's like you it's more trouble than it's worth for somebody to be like oh should we acknowledge this huge portion of the country that doesn't feel like less Trump, but people who voted for him are all idiots. You know, there are plenty of people who don't consider themselves racist and maybe they just didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. They didn't like her. And I think it's so much more trouble than it's worth. And that's why I was you know, disappointed in what Roseanne said and what happened. But the fact that like she had a show where she was a Trump supporter and, you know, I felt like that worked. I don't like Donald Trump as a person. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I've, you know, I, I find so many things just cringeworthy about him, but I certainly understand that right around half of the people in the country at some point in the last few years liked him enough to vote for him and about as many are going to vote for him again. And I think that even when you had George W. Bush and things were divisive, this is so different. It's like, oh, yeah, we just got to stay away from it. And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to put you on, any, uh, on the spot on this at all. But do you think it's possible to try and have something that has the balance? We have all these outlets for comedy. Do you think mm -hmm. that somebody would actually take that chance where they're like, yes, here are the liberal characters on the show. And there are also characters who are maybe a little bit more right of center, but they're not here just for you to laugh at. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like Archie yeah. Bunker, you know? It's a great question. I think the answer is no, in part because nobody is interested in characters who are just a little right of center right now. Right. Right. And that, that is a, um, and it's not true that those people have disappeared. I mean, that's, yeah. that's enti entirely not true. Right. Uh, but in terms of cultural consciousness, that, that position is basically, uh, uh, uh erased, right. It, it kind of doesn't, doesn't exist at all. Uh, which means that you, um, you know, to have that sort of mixed ensemble cast, right. It, to have it be interesting. No, you've got to find people who are 
sort of more vocal in their in their politics and and you know Archie and and uh, Meathead in their day were were not nearly uh, sort of the extreme versions that I think we we would get today that would draw interest for a left wing character and a right wing character and the distance between them I think is an issue um, I, I think one of the reasons that we can't have this, uh, it kind of goes back to the kind of thing I was saying in the classroom that you kind of have to tell people what it means. Uh, it, it, for a long time and South Park's the big example that goes against this. Uh, but a lot of comedies based on the idea that two people are going to understand it completely differently. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, uh, till death us do part, which is what, uh, all in the family was based on the British show. Uh, they did study after study and found that like, it was basically 50, 50 of people who thought the main, the main character, uh, also Alf, uh, was, <laughs> Uh, anti-immigrant racist and the other half who thought he was a good defender of British values and right. they just let the thing go and let people talk about it discuss it some people thought it was irresponsible some people thought it was uh, a good way to embrace this question but it did not have a clear political ideology uh that was easily understood across the board. And I think that if something touches on politics today and it doesn't have that clear political ideology, I'm not sure there's a market for it. Yeah. And, you know, just just yesterday I heard an interview with uh, David Spade. He was on Howard Stern's show and he's promoting his new show. And he was talking about how in, in his comedy, and he talked about this uh, with Dennis when he was on last year, he doesn't do anything political because he's just like, you know, so many other people do that. And, you know, maybe he feels like they do it better. But it's like, I understand people who dabbled in political humor just be like, yeah, I'm going to stay away from it because you're automatically, you know, the, the idea is usually you're going to automatically alienate half of the audience by taking a stand one way or the other. But I think now you have people on both sides of all these issues that you ha you have those who every day is made up with, uh, I can't believe how terrible they're treating our president. And then the other side you have, I'm fueled with my hatred for Trump. I can't believe that, you know, we still have to wait to vote again. And then you have all the other people, uh, myself included, are just like, I'm just tired of all of it. And when I can have a conversation that doesn't involve that, that's great. You know, sure, once in a while, like, yeah, I get it. If it's important, something's in the news. I'm not saying that. Let's not put our heads in the sand. But there are people, and look, social media is a perfect representation of this, where that's like all they are is thing, mm -hmm. things go through that prism. To the extent I'm like, I don't know if I want to post these pictures of like my kids and I like at the pool or like, you know, Felix, my son mm -hmm. with spaghetti on his face because it's like, oh yeah, that's- How dare you do that while yeah. other kids are suffering in cages and whatnot, it, it, yeah. Literally, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are people that it, it always goes around like, you know, like 4th of July was like a day where like, oh, you know, we were having fun and then, you know, it was all about like, oh, that's great that we can celebrate. And it was literally, while kids are in cages. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not saying kids in cages are right. It's a, I shouldn't have to say that it's wrong. I get it. But I, I, at some point, I need to live my life. And I, I don't know. I think that it's so hard to navigate what it is. And, you know, doing a podcast with Dennis Miller, who is known <laughs> for comedy uh, about yeah. current events, he's not that interested in it either. You know, if we could do yeah. a, a show about what he's watching on TCM and the books he's reading, he'd be more passionate about it. I'm not to say he's not that he's dispassionate about it. You know, he'll, he'll say that he, he doesn't follow politics that closely. He just kind of does it for career because that's what people expect. 
Right. There's such a such a uh, push towards uh, towards the extreme in, in anything that you're going to bring up a political element. Yeah. No. There's there's no question about it. I mean, I guess that that big moral question of how do you uh, how do you live your life when there is injustice in the world? Um, on the one hand, that is a very tough question. On the other hand, to act as though that is new, right? That right. on Fourth of July in 1997 or whatever, there weren't people suffering horrific injustices, and yet you still went to the pool. Uh, that, that's the part that strikes me as uh, as a little bit hard to deal with. I mean, I, I certainly am not suggesting we don't see things that are. Uh, particularly awful at the moment, but you can do what you can about those and also go to the pool. Yeah. Um, and in fact, if you don't go to the pool, the, the odds are you're not spending that time doing much useful <laughs> anyway. Um, you know, there, the, there, there's an element of it which is very performative. Um, and it's also just an element of, of you know, uh, uh, being forced to face realities which are different but maybe not as different and people react in, in different ways. Um, in terms of Dennis, I think that's that's really, uh, you know, I will out myself as a, as, as a Dennis Miller listener, starting with, uh, well, SNL, but then uh, the, uh, loving the HBO show. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, absolutely. just uh, and, and being really excited for the day that I would get the jokes. <laughs> right and it took about like 20 years yeah but, like when he makes a dot joke i get it now and i yeah my like my my 15 year old self is very happy yeah um, i'm still that, i'm that, still waiting to get some of them but uh oh, some i can, of them for I can, sure. I'm not I can fake it yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah no, there's a few that i get i feel yeah. i feel really good about it um uh, but i gotta say listening to the the podcast uh, uh the dennis miller, miller option i mean i i find his uh most of his politics completely antithetical to my own um but when he talks about old movies it, it yeah. kills me i mean he's got this depth of knowledge and uh, this level of uh these references which should be hard are so easy for him and like <laughs> yes. you know like there's something yeah. extremely satisfying about it uh, that's the one i'd pay you the dollar for is the one that's just that uh but uh, that's not the model right you need you need to sell ads you need a lot more than than uh a few passionate people to to make a show go so right, i see exactly. why we get the trump stuff and that's the parts of the show well i gotta be honest now that we're talking about this that and when he describes the lives of professors that's the other part i have trouble with <laughs> yeah uh, he has some very uh, specific views on on teachers that i think and, and you know i mean teachers at the younger level and also professors because you know look i i think he paints with a very broad brush when he does that i think those are very specific uh, instances that have you know in recent years raising his kids that have uh, colored a lot of it and mm -hmm. yeah i i can understand uh, certainly understand how you would feel that way and yeah i think see but the interesting thing is in what you said is that you disagree with uh, with uh, a lot of his political leanings and you know mm -hmm. I, I it's hit or miss for me there's a lot of things where i'm like yeah that's close enough to where I feel, but there's a lot of things that I don't agree with him on. But the thing that I'll always try to explain to people who don't understand how he is the way he is now, which isn't actually that different than he was 15 years ago. If you were paying attention, I don't mean you right. personally. No, no, I, 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 yeah. If, if audiences were as paying attention, who does pay attention, yeah, I agree. yeah, he, he was, he shifted a little bit and nine 11 was a very important moment for him. He's talked about all of this. If you want to yeah. know more about Dennis Miller's stance, you, you know, he's talked about it, but yep. for me, what's important is that he is very liberal on social issues. And that's the stuff that would bother me. I, I don't really care how he feels about, taxes and I, I don't make that kind of money. I, I would have probably a very different worldview if I did, you know, and 
that stuff, whatever, it doesn't bother me. It's the fa- and you know the fact that he's just like, look, I don't understand. He's had friends who have had gay weddings, and he's like, I, don't, I guess I'm supposed to think that that's wrong. And I, I think I, when I spoke with you previously, that was one of those things that right. was difficult in selling the radio show was because he was conservative yeah. on a lot of things, but he was really a libertarian, and also on social issues. You know, we would get pitched guests on you know how how about traditional marriage and things like that and i'm like you know it's better we don't do that segment because yeah. he's not going to agree well, with you the way that other other hosts tragedy, would yeah. Though, yeah right because like he he's he can be in that way he could play the role of that bridge to the to the yeah. audience who can realize that you know here's a guy who i don't consider to be a complete uh, loon because he you know i like his positions on this and this oh but he's different on this yeah that's the that's the making of a conversation that i mean people are rarely convinced uh, through conversation but like if if you're gonna move towards that right it's going to be the in, in, interlocking of people who you you realize are not mortal enemies but have a point of disagreement and it's really uh really says something about the media environment that 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 kind of audience is just not there to have that discussion because he's the perfect guy uh to to talk about uh you know the to the to the defensive marriage person uh to yeah. the extent that he, he can't be just like, wiped away as a leftist or something right exactly and i think that that's what it really comes down to having not that much to do with with dennis in particular is just people aren't really that interested in having conversations people are interested in echo chambers and that's like whether you're like well i you know i watch fox news or i watch msnbc and i, I don't know what cnn is but you know you feel like they're they have very specific ideologies i thought that cnn should have billed itself as like well we're the one that's the actual real news so why don't you stick with us but that you know they didn't ask me so that no. jeff zucker's not in that business of you know of giving people the real hard news and you know what maybe people don't want that so just having the conversation is not something people are interested in and therein lies the problem with comedy is that's a conversation with somebody on a stage just speaking of, of stand-up and you know you can have people that you think are very funny uh you know uh, of wide uh, ideologies you know i mean somebody right. like nick DiPaolo, who's a conservative comedian is very funny to me and you know jim norton is somebody who's a little bit more you know he's kind of right down the middle you have uh, you know and and colin quinn these are all people who i still think are very funny who talk about some of these issues but you know, one thing that like, you know, Nick DiPaolo says one thing about that he likes about Trump. And then all of a sudden it's like somebody's going to throw out everything else, you know, and to some mm. extent that that happens with with Dennis, you know, and it's just like to me, it's like there's things that are really funny about Donald Trump. And it's not necessarily Alec Baldwin's impression, which, you know, I think we've seen enough of. Yeah, and, sure. And not in defense of Donald Trump. I'm just like, okay, no. it's, it's the <laughs> you same You can still now. be tired of the it's, impression. It's always uh, the same now, you know? And I'm just yeah. like, okay. But... No, you're, you're right. I mean, you describe, uh, you know, this, this need to... Uh, pinned down so precisely, right? But it has everything to do with the media environment, right? With, with the with the level of competition uh, that, you know, the uh, the slicing of that audience thinner and thinner and thinner. It's just looking for ways to, uh, you know, identify into those little slices, yeah. right? And, and uh, you know, it wasn't that far uh, in, in, in the past where, you know, there was a relatively uh, low number of comedians who had a broad platform, which you might say isn't so great, but if there's a relatively low number, that means they have to 
accommodate uh, each of them needs yeah. to accommodate a much broader part of the cultural and political landscape, right? And now it's 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 that's not the case. The 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 only way to make a go of it is to get that small passionate audience, which requires consistency and sort of repetition in a way that's uh, it's bad for like sort of democratic discussion, but it's also not great for comedy because it doesn't surprise you. Yeah. Right, you, you you so much less frequently get a, a sort of political humor that you like didn't see coming. You see it all coming because you know sort of the lane they're in. Yeah, and uh, you know it's not that long ago, but when Dennis would be on the Daily Show, John Stewart would usually say like, "I didn't agree with a lot of that, but it was all funny," you know, and yeah, and right. you're not right. getting a lot of that, you know. You Bill Maher's show, people are there to applaud and boo; they're not there to laugh. So even if somebody that they don't like says something funny, they're like, "No, I, I refuse to laugh at that," you know. And there's not really an answer to it. I think it's more indicative of our society in general. But what I wanted to steer towards is is why do you think that you were talking about all these little niches that are out there? Because there's the view that obviously all the media is on the left, and I don't think that it's 100% wrong to feel that way, you know, because it is skewed, especially it's much more apparent with this president than I think any time before. And why do you think there isn't, and, you know, it wouldn't be a big network show, but why isn't there the the thing that people ask about? Where's the conservative Tonight Show, the conservative uh, Saturday Night yeah, Live? I do have some feelings on this. Yeah. So one, I think that there's an extent to which that we look in the wrong places for this. Um, and something I've been actually writing about lately. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you, you'll find a thousand think pieces. There's no conservative Jon Stewart. And I actually think that's, that's wrong. I think there is. Uh, I think it's just a sort of formatting difference. I think that yeah. Jesse Waters plays that role. I've sort of written this out in, in some academic stuff. Uh, surprisingly, like on the nose, sort of picking. I mean, there are there are bits that that Waters does and the Daily Show do with like the same guests. And so there, there's some extent to which I think it's just not true. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Jesse Waters. I don't need to go into all the things I don't like oh, about that's him. that's fine. But yeah, but uh, he, yeah, but, somebody like him. And then you also have Steven Crowder who uh, mm -hmm. made a name for himself. I think some of it uh, is very funny. And then it's it's another generational thing. I'm like, well, this isn't for me. You know, they're not, he's not trying to make me laugh. So it, it, he seems to have a huge following. You know, he, he has yeah. a subscriber-based platform. So that- so th There are those. Yeah, I mean, there's- but, and then, and I think that I don't know if I'd call him right wing in this like easy sense, but I mean Joe Rogan's developing a platform yeah. that certainly accommodates that space uh, and is absolutely massive. So there are some. I mean, I think you answered the question a little bit in the question, in that. Uh, let's see if I can state this clearly. Uh, in your perspective, which I, I'll I'll accept uh, at least for the for the purpose of discussing, uh, media general media has uh, at least a great tolerance for sort of liberal thinking. Right. Right. Which means that the funny show that is liberal can be on a broad, uh, something that is not just devoted to liberalness, right? Comedy Central is by no means uh, a station devoted to liberalness. There's lots of stuff on that on that station which is just not politically uh, invested at all. There's a lot of you know stuff that's you know like roasts and stuff that have jokes that liberals yeah, sure. don't like, and, and so it's just a general TV show. And then there's the comedy show on that is is you know a liberal show. Right. But that gives it sort of a breathing room, whereas the conservative comedy you see is always on uh, outlets branded as conservative. You know, part of the reason that I think that uh, like the half hour uh, news hour from uh, from Fox couldn't quite work uh, is that it was on a news station. Yeah. 
And it was on a a news station with a very specific politics, so it becomes so limited what it can say and joke about. Um, It gets circumscribed by its sort of labeling. And, you know, part of that could be just what you said, that if the general media landscape is fairly open to uh, uh, liberal thinking, then you can have a a show that is liberal but surrounded by other stuff. It's much more rich. If it wants to go off topic, it can do that and it doesn't offend the audience. Whereas if you're doing a comedy show on Fox News, uh, you're not going to have a single joke on there, which is not uh, sort of aimed at that very specific audience. And I think that's just kind of bad for comedy. Yeah, and I watched both episodes they did of the half hour news hour, and there were only two I do remember. And this is go- this is what this is like not quite fifteen years ago, but it's like twelve, well, it's ten or twelve. Years yeah, it's ago. about twelve years ago. Yeah. yeah, and I mean a lot of it was sort of weekend update style, which I think that that worked. And I remember yeah. the opening sketch was what Rush Limbaugh was president and Ann Coulter was vice president, so they were definitely playing to the base. I think. It was only half an hour because I think that honestly they had like a one hour budget and they did yeah. two episodes and then it went away. I think that's that is part of the problem that you have doing a show like that for the Fox News channel. I think in a, a different format, a show like Red Eye with Greg Gutfeld uh, worked a lot better because it was more of a conversation. And, you know, there some of those regulars were not conservative talking heads or conservative comedians, and they were able to have a little bit of a conversation. It was also a show that was on at 3 a.m. Eastern time. So, you know, it didn't really lend itself to too much scrutiny. I mean, now yeah. I don't know what would happen if we did the same show. So I, I do think that there aren't a lot of places. So, you you know, obviously you have what is essentially the the Blaze, which is Glenn Beck's outlet. You know, the the CRTV subscription based model also like merged with it. But then, like you're saying, it's going to always be on brand. And sure, SNL has a lot of very left leaning sketches. I'm not pretending that they don't. But then there's also right. silly sketches. And there's, it, there's Lazy Sunday, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, and and it, it would never a favorite of mine. But then you have characters like Mango, the exotic yeah. dancer. You have stuff like that. Yeah, Robert Goulet and all yeah. these like totally out. Yeah, yeah, that, that's and, right. And so if you can go for a mixture like that, it, it, it I, I think it's much could help. Richer. Realistically, there is another contemporary example. Uh, sure. OAN, the uh, the Huckabee Network, right. has a show currently on uh, on called Headlines Tonight. Okay, and it is brutal. I mean, it it is. Uh, it's what's the guy? Jay Barishnik? Bar- I forget the name of the guy. You can look it up. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah. A, yeah it's, it's the One so American it's, Network. Yeah, it's yeah. half hour news hour uh, e, I guess. Although I'll. Look- agree with you that you know uh uh half hour news hour get, it, it's not nearly as like badly put together as its reputation for uh, yeah no i mean ha- it has come yeah it, it, uh, look it looked like it was it looked like a like a i don't know like a show like not necessarily the news really you know i mean of course yeah, it was like no, 20 years earlier but it's like they spent yeah. a little money on it they had let's put it i know what i'll say it, it jokes had, it had I mean, it, it had jokes some of which were funny and some of which weren't what you can say about right. weekend update yeah. and they had sets that looked like somebody had actually built them so there was that you know well, the performances are okay the yeah. character it's got lorenzo lamas uh showing up in like kind of like funny ways oh yeah it's it's like, I mean, whatever. I'm not going to tell you this is great TV, uh, no. but most most TV is bad TV, so that's fine. Uh, <laughs> Headlines Tonight is garbage on garbage. Like really? it is unbelievable. I mean, I, I uh, so I, I mean, I'm, I'm writing about this kind of thing right now, so I'm I'm watching it, and uh, you know, I 
even though even, there's plenty of things where I don't like the politics, but I, I enjoy watching it for a variety of reasons. Uh, headlines tonight is the sloggiest of slogs. Uh, it's it's just like the, whatever the guy's name is, Barichnik. It's just him. Uh, and Drew like, Berquist. I've looked it Drew up while Berkquist. we're talking. Uh, yeah, that's that's how much of an impact he made. I'm not. Yeah. I'm zero embarrassed for not having remembered his name. Um, it's like a tight shot of him like sweating with yeah. this incredibly intense laugh track. Oh, and. And I think, and actually you as a producer, it'd be interesting uh, on your take. I think what's happening is that he's sort of telling this quote unquote jokes. And I think that there's like an intern who's deciding in his earpiece when to hit the laugh track. Oh, okay. It's a fake laugh track, but he reacts to it. Like he gets thrown by it. Yeah. Like he, he gets like surprised <laughs> by it in obvious ways. And people come on and do these like horrifically lazy impressions. Like this guy does like Bernie and it's like just... It, it hits that perfect, like, it's not anti-Semitic, but it's not not anti-Semitic kind of a thing. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's one of my favorite right. things that I've heard in a while. It's not anti-Semitic, <laughs> but it's not not anti-Semitic. It's uh, like right in uh, the middle. Oh, it's so bad. It's so bad. I, I mean, as, as, as somebody who uh, appreciates uh, train wrecks on, on any level of any ideology, I'm you reading, might like it. <laughs> I, well, I'm reading about Drew Berquist, who previously served as a counterterrorism officer for the United States oh. Intelligence committee that's where i go for my comedy yeah well that's yeah and look i'm i'm sure that you can you can make people you can certainly make people laugh uh you know when you're you could but that doesn't mean you need to be on television and i wish i had seen this so that we could have talked about it and Uh, you know if i could isolate anything from i'm just looking at a clip that i'm not listening to because obviously i'm talking to you and i mean it looks like it 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 looks like alex jones it looks like infowars it does yeah it has an infowars kind of feel to it i mean it's it's incredibly uh i mean the the budget is is very low yeah um and uh it, it tends to not um doesn't have jokes really. Uh, it has a lot of scoffing. Yeah. And it does a lot. He, he uh, what's his name again? I've already forgotten it. Drew. Drew. Uh, Drew Berquist. Yeah, Drew, Drew Berquist. Berquist. <laughs> he, he 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 like he spends a lot of time saying that he disagrees with things. Yeah. Which is not not a great comedic premise. It, it's incredibly claustrophobic, and you know, I mean, part of it it could just be bad a bad show, right? But I think it is it is extremely. I mean, because my understanding of OAN is that it's for people who think that Fox is too squishy. Well, right? in all honesty, to have a legitimate conversation about this, there are people who feel that Fox News ha- is too far uh, away from the right now. That yeah, right. during that the Trump years, sometimes yeah, like, and. Push- I, I mean, I would say that that Chris Wallace, you know, it seems to be one of the last few people who ask the tough questions of everyone. You know, it's not the gotcha of just Republicans, although, you know, obviously that's what you're going to see. But he asks everybody tough questions. You know, I mean, I'm not look, it's it's, a, you know, he had the job before him and they're they're also similar shows they are basically the same show. It's reminiscent of Tim Russert in that, like, he gave everybody a hard time and that's why it was good. But. Yeah, he's a perfect example of what I think is is a short list of, you know, who I think are are really good journalists where I think Chris Wallace might be left leaning, but I don't know it. And there's, you know, a guy like Chuck Todd, I don't have any doubt. And I, I'm not I'm not disparaging his broadcasting, but I feel like I know where he stands on the issues he talks about. And if I'm wrong, my apologies. And so for Fox News to do things like 
have a town hall for Bernie Sanders, they're like, no, this is a terrible idea. But not to get too bogged into the politics of this, I think it's very smart for Bernie Sanders to like, yeah, I'm going to do an hour on Fox News because if I do an hour on MSNBC, those people are going to vote for me probably in the primaries, but definitely as the nominee. And exposing yourself to people who, you know, maybe, you know, it might be something different. So uh, when you are the OANs of the world, I think that you're closing things off. And if they want to replace Drew Burkus with uh, the black cast tomorrow night, I will sing their praises. I will take all this back. But, (laughs) you know, I think that their very specific ideology, I I think, gets in the way. And I I think think so. I think think that, that if they have to be on brand, yeah. Every moment, there's there's no comedy to be found there. Yeah, and and I think that you know when you're so far to the left and the that you're not even actually doing comedy. You know when your comedy is to say fuck Trump. I'm like okay, but you know do more with it than that. Let's actually like put some laughs into here. You know like uh, I don't know you know your Kathy Griffins and your Joy Behar's mm-hmm. who I think are people who are very capable of telling jokes, but it just that doesn't seem to be the business that they're in right now because they're angry. No. And I think they're certainly uh, right. entitled to be angry, but it's like if you are a comedian, it would be great if if you figured out a way to tell jokes, which of course is uh, very, very easy for me to say because I don't have platforms. Well, Kathy Griffin doesn't right. have as much right now, but you know, Joy Behar's on The View, obviously. I think you're right. And I think part of what you're getting at is that, yeah, as, as painful as Drew Berquist is, if you gave him the production value of, of you know, the Joe Behar, Joy Behar gets, uh, they would look like mirror images in some ways in yeah. terms of their attempts at comedy. I think that's right. I yeah. mean, I might, I might find one more upsetting uh, than the other in terms of morality or whatever, sure. but in terms of comedic skill, yeah, they're probably not and, doing much different. And I'm going to bet he maybe has a couple writers, but you know, like maybe. the, yeah, but he may have zero writers. Yeah. Maybe the intern you're talking about who, you know, pushes the laugh track, you know, writes for yeah. him, you know? And I, I think that the fact that, you know, if you look at the writing staff of SNL has about 25 writers, it's a different kind of show, right. but your, your uh, Colbert's and your Fallon's, those have a fairly comparable staff, you know, even mm-hmm. Conan, who has like a half hour show now still has a bunch of writers. So, and that's really what you need. In the early days of the radio show, the Dennis Miller radio show, people were like, oh, you know, I, I think that what we were, what we want is more like the HBO show. And I'm like, great, yeah. that HBO show you- had 25 writers. So do you want to do a few million that? bucks between yeah, you and right, between exactly. that and that, right? and, yeah. and it's it wasn't for radio you know and it's just yeah. it's just very different and it's hard to compare and i don't know i i i still like to think that i can laugh about you know something's funny you know there was that stretch on SNL where they didn't really do Obama comedy, you know, the Fred Armisen impression wasn't that much of an impression and they didn't do it much. I think Jay Farrow's impression of Barack Obama, he, you know, look, he'd had more years to to study the man, but it, it made more fun in a way that was still respectful because it's better. Know, it's a better impression. And it's somebody who can go places that Fred Armisen. Right. Cannot go. Well, the fact that Fred Armisen was, you know, I, I don't know. It's That's not technically blackface, right. but, you know, I, I think you you certainly wouldn't oh, do that. That would not happen right now. Yeah, that, that would certainly be. would not happen now. But. 
you know, the there because there was the idea when Obama became president. It's like, well, we don't see anything that's funny about him. I'm like, really? There's nothing funny about him? I mean, just the fact that he pretends that he doesn't smoke cigarettes still, that's funny. You know, the fact that, you know, he's like sneaking cigarettes and in interviews on the campaign trail, you know, and you know, called out Jake Tapper for uh, for ratting on him, which, you know, to me, it's hysterical. And I, oh, I don't it's know. also I, low stakes. Yeah. Right. And and I think that that this is the beginning of an era where, where we refuse to, to acknowledge anything as low stakes. Yeah. Right. And, and Barack Obama's cigarettes is low stakes. And it, I mean, I guess you could find a racial uh, a racial overtone with yeah, anything. No, but it's there, true. There's really not one there. Um, yeah. And, well, yeah. Uh, but, you know, and somebody like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the, the right hate her. But it's also kind of funny some of the things she says. And, the you know, they have like a, a very soft impression of her that uh, Melissa Villasenor does on, on SNL. Right. And it's not somebody that they talk about. But then, of course, like f- from anybody who's even remotely comedic on the right, it, it, it's, it all comes from a very mean-spirited place, which is basically... Look at this girl who thinks that she should be in Congress. I'm like, that's not what's funny about her, you know? No, it's it, like, yeah, right. You, 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 it's not about foibles, right? It's yeah. about some sort of like a deep personal insult, which it becomes more than personal, right? It becomes yeah. sort of aimed at groups. And uh, yeah, no, I think I think that that is right. I mean, there is something to. It, it is so hard these days for uh, uh, an institution to understand anything that a broad swath of its audience likes. Yeah. Right. And, you know, a- 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 AOC is very popular in a demographic that SNL is very interested in. Yeah. And that's a rare opportunity where you have somebody who you know that your most valuable viewers in terms of advertising dollars actually likes. And the same with Obama. It was a bigger, bigger group with Obama. It doesn't mean you can't make jokes if you're good, but yeah. you really want to be careful there, right? Yeah, of course. And Absolutely. I, I, you, you add that with, yes, a lot of the politically correct kind of elements. And it's this uh, storm, again, that's sort of antithetical to comedy. And I think this is a common trend that we're coming to here. Like uh, on, in all these different dynamics, you get the cultural things going on. Then you got the media economics and like how people make money telling jokes and like the combination points us in these ways that that are you know kind of make it harder to be actually funny i would never characterize myself as a comedian but as somebody who tries to you know put jokes out into the ether in a various number of uh, platforms it is really difficult i mean just you know, being able to think like, oh, it was really funny when Trump said this thing in a press conference. And then it's like, oh, so you're okay with the, and you know, I hear about 10 things that are mm-hmm. not great about him. I'm like, no, I just think that that thing was funny, but I, I see that it's that conversation. And that's to go back to what I was saying is like, that's just a conversation that I'm typically not interested in having. Obviously this it took a much uh, more serious and in-depth turn mm-hmm. than I thought it would, but uh, mm-hmm. I've, I'm very much enjoying the conversation. Before we wrap it up, I did want to kind of talk about what are some of the things that are featured in the book or that you teach academically that are some of the, you know, like it's a great feeling of bringing this material to an audience and showing that this piece from an earlier whatever decade still works Mm. in kind of the same way. Is there, is there, Mm. are we able to have like timeless comedy at this point? I mean, I feel like even something like the naked gun is, is going to be judged fairly harshly for, you know, I don't know, portrayal of women. And well, if we're going to be honest about the naked gun movies, the fact that OJ Simpson is in it, you know, it's, 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 you know, you can, you can watch OJ Simpson get dragged under a car and get beaten up and all that but at the end of the day you're like yeah but you know he he mm, killed yeah, two, no. he killed two people 
Yeah, no, that's uh, but that's that's a, a, a very specific sort of uh, uh, unfortunate aging of yeah. the movie. I mean, going across time is it's it's really tough. I mean, it, part of it it does have to do with sensitivities and things that have changed. Other parts is that you know comedy is so contextual uh, that it is it is difficult. I mean. Um, I don't think we have much in the book. We don't really talk about um, uh, sort of the uh, like uh, uh, Howard Hawksian kind of comedies. Uh, those I find students actually re- really can engage with quite well. Uh, uh, His Girl Friday kind of thing, Bring right. the Baby. Partially because there is a lot of like proto-feminism in, in those, even if you, you know, sort of have to like sort it out. Um, so there, there's some of that stuff. I mean, I, things like the Marx Brothers, yeah. right? Where, you know, that students can often, it's so displaced that like the politics get taken out of it and sort of isolates the the wordplay or the the visual puns or the absurdity i think those things are fun to to introduce and uh and engage with but there's kind of this valley right like once start uh, things start being in color yeah uh, that they're like it's too close to the contemporary uh moment so the it's in that like you don't give people passes for things right like Cary Grant gets a big pass for like you know sort of acting uh, acting uh, uh, the patriarchal misogynist and various things because it's sort of charming and old uh, yeah. but once you got people doing that in color uh, uh, I think that students do have more trouble with it and, and it's also uh, the references are things that you've heard of but you don't really get entirely it becomes really kind of difficult and the uh, also, they're not sort of canonized as like classic things. You have to kind of figure out how they work in context. All, all of which is to say that it, it is a real challenge to go too far back and show things, which is why, honestly, in that book, we, we focus uh, overwhelmingly on recent things. But one thing I can say to answer your question is uh, it used to be very hard to introduce students to contemporary comedy. Because if it was worth showing them, they probably would have heard of it. That is not the case anymore. It's hard to go into a classroom of 25 students and, and find a single thing they've all watched. And so, I mean, I, I get great joy from introducing students to uh, uh, Archer, for say. Oh, uh, sure. Se. Yeah. <laughs> Which, on the one hand, is like, oh, that's a current thing. And they should. But they no, of course, like most people have never heard of it. Uh, yeah, so which is it's, it's a good time. point, and that that's also a little bit generational. Where I think that you have people a little bit older, you know, maybe people in their fifties have no idea what that is, even though the show's been on for mm-hmm. I don't know ten years or whatever. But by being on, I don't know FX, and then I think it moved over to FXX, it's sort of like off yeah. their radar. And you know, uh, a, a show like it, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, people kind of know what it is, but it's also on for kind like fifteen of, years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right now, if you go into a, uh, uh, you know, at least the college classroom, sort of ones that I, I am I am teaching in, and you want to have some sort of general comedy ref- reference uh, that crosses genders and, and sort of is broad, you basically have The Office. Like, yeah. they, st- they still all know and watch I, The Office. And specifically, nothing else. specifically The American Office, because but I the think office, the British 100%. office is, is a little too rough around the edges, I think, for yeah. uh, for some people. Interesting, I, I find that doing shows for the, the network that I, I do things for, After Buzz TV, it's a lot of uh, younger than myself people who I unfortunately I'm in a position now where I'm like, oh, I can literally be this person's father because they're in their early 20s. You know, <laughs> if I if I led a different life uh, back in the, the late you 90s. You were a very fertile uh, late teenager. So. Yeah, well, no, but could, in, could, in my in my mid-20s because I'm 43. So oh, you would, are. Oh, yeah, wow. so yeah, it wouldn't have okay. taken much. <laughs> so, you know, like the, the, the 21-year-old interns, I'm like, oh, yeah, I could be I could be their dad. <laughs> but in any case, one of the things that I find that they tend to like is, is the sitcom Friends, which 
I of see course, still. Yeah. I, I see a lot at the gym, and obviously anybody who's seen me, I clearly spend a lot of time in the gym because I'm so buff. But mm-hmm. what I find about that show, and I've talked about this, I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast before. I've talked about it a few times in other places. I'm expecting the shoe to drop on Friends because of just sort of the you know, this like inherent, it's not even like misogyny. These are like relatively nice guys, but they're deathly afraid of people thinking that they're gay. And yeah, however, it it also like has like the lesbian plot lines that, that that are, it's true. But you know, it's it just so much of the comedy comes from like, hey, you know, the, the, what do you think was going on in there wasn't. And, you know, I think they do yeah, to, yeah, great, yeah. to great effect on on Seinfeld. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Yep. I think that, you know, and there's just so much of it. it, it you just I, I wonder, I'm like that show, what, it's premiered 25 years ago. I'm like, in, in another five years, are we in a place where people are going to be like, yeah, friends. Friends is is not woke enough, you know. I mean, friend, you know. First of all, well, I mean, legitimately, they didn't. They only had white friends for like the first four seasons. So, you know, in in Manhattan of all places. So, yeah, I I understood that argument at the time, but it's a great indication of like it's still very funny, and I I see things I'm like oh, I remember how funny this is. But mm-hmm. are the next generation of, you know, the next college kids in five years are they going to be like, I, I I'm uncomfortable with this. Yeah, I mean, I think I think maybe I mean, it could simply I mean, it's got to be at the edge of its relevance anyway, just yeah. in terms of its age. Um, I, I think something that could hasten it would be that, um, although I, I, I think we won't know. I think that, you know, if it if it does sort of fade, you'll hear some complaints about it, but yeah. it might just be that it's older. Uh, I so in other words, I take the question. I think you're right. I I. I you might be right and it might just not matter because of its age hard to tell. Yeah. I think the the office is almost a more difficult question because the office is full of uncomfortable things couched in irony. Yeah. And like, you know, sort of really directly racist things. Right? But of course it's that it's that Archie Bunker situation. And that's the one that I wonder if the next generation and currently college kids love friends, they love the office. I can yeah. say that demonstrably. I, I worry about the office and and that sort of irony and uh, you know, can and you talked about the British office being rough around the edges, which is true, but there are plenty of moments where M- Michael Scott says something that is, you know, uh, you know, he asks uh, Oscar uh, uh, what's a what's a what's a less offensive way to say Mexican Right, right. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And there's that's irony. He's dumb, but like, yeah, Michael Scott is very stupid. So you're able to get away with him, you know, being ignorant on things and then him trying to show how sensitive he is when they have, you know, big office wide, you know, meetings in the conference room about diversity day and things like that. And I think the fact that it is such a diverse cast, you know, that, you know, you have, you know, you have all these different characters. And I, I think that, uh, you know, Mindy Kaling's character is so well played in terms of as as a foil to him of just like, this guy's such an idiot. Like, he doesn't know anything about it, you know. And um, why? Oh, Stanley. I was trying to remember that character, you know, just yeah, how he no, just glares right. at him. The majority of the of the series is Stanley glaring at Michael and shaking his head. And right, you're right. You're right. I'm I assuming think... that Stanley is good at basketball or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. This this guy who's like in his mid fifties and you know incredibly <laughs> overweight. He's just like, well, of course you're good at basketball. He's known, 
for his diabetes. Yes. Yeah, right. So yeah, yeah. I, I think that uh, that's a, that's a perfect example. I, I know how much people love both The Office and Friends, and I was sort of yeah. I hope I'm wrong, and people can continue to love both of these shows. I just wonder if it's where it's coming. But oh, I know how much I, people love those shows, and it seems like those are the most popular things on Netflix, unless I'm mistaken. Like they just spent no, Netflix spent yeah. a ton of money to keep Friends for like another year or something before the WB streaming service starts because people yeah. were upset that it was going away now and they're like well it's gonna go away in another year but it's the only thing i mean so i i started uh i started teaching media classes in uh 2006 something like that mm -hmm. and at that point there was a uh good body of shows that you could just mention and assume that most people understood it and those that didn't uh, would have heard of it uh, or at least that know it exists and honest to god today I mean there was Game of Thrones but that was momentary right that is, that sure. is not there anymore and there is Friends and The Office and any other thing you mention like no matter how big you think something is you cannot assume that 50% of 20 year olds are aware that it even exists and I mean that 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 is I mean Netflix has allowed that sort of uh, uh, network culture to to like sneak a little bit closer to us. Once those things are are off of Netflix, I, I seriously think I mean basically once Netflix uh, uh, at least has competitors, and we'll see. I mean who knows how that goes in terms of the business. But but if in fact uh, sort of more even-handed competitors emerge to it, I think the idea of common media culture, uh, particularly around young people, will will like sort of breathe its last breath. Um, you know, maybe there'll be a consolidation in the future and things will come back. But but it's uh, it is striking how it's it is so different from from you know not that long ago. Yeah, it's it, and I don't know. I guess in the way that there are there's subject matter from you know from All in the Family and the Jeffersons mm. and Maude that you know doesn't hold up. That could ultimately be what does these shows in. You know, I mean, it's yeah. It, I, I think that that's natural. But, I think that the Office. I mean, I think Archie was understood to be – I think Archie Bunker was understood quite well to be a, a complicated, ironic character yeah. uh, in the 1970s. And yet today, as I said, I've got a colleague who will not play the show. Yeah, no, exactly. So I don't and, see why that wouldn't befall, befall Michael Scott. And, it doesn't – I don't see why he'd be protected. Yeah, and we've touched on it a couple times. Obviously, uh, Eric Cartman survives because of the fact that it, he's animated and – that helps. What, yeah, the, for sure. This is 22 years ago that well, show premiered. I'll, I'll go a little bit further out. That that helps. It also helps that his main, um, you know, I, I've seen most South Park, but not all. But his his vitriol being targeted largely at Jews, yeah. I think, helps. Right. I think that in our, our sort of like black, white binary world, there's yeah. something about that 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 uh, is less likely to set off some of the alarms. Yes. Yeah, it's true. And the fact that the the black kid on that show's name is Token is uh, just mm -hmm. shows how smart they are. And, you know, that to, yeah. to just keep it succinctly, the the political debate, uh, that is one of the places you can go where it is uh, savage on both sides of, you know, I ideology. They they think everything's funny, and especially the things that you're not supposed to think are funny. But, you know, I think that they do a good job. I mean, it's funny because, like, in the early seasons, the Bill Clinton they had is very cartoony. But, of course, they've had George W. Bush and, and, and Obama. And then, of course, you know, they've, they've got Trump now, who's basically... 
who is Mr. Garrison, actually. So, mm-hmm. you know, right. I, I think that just the stuff that, and one of the shows that I do for AfterBuzz TV is a South Park after show. They only do 10 episodes a year now. And it, it's still, I'm still surprised. Some of it's like, oh, I'm shocked that they went this far, but I'm surprised at how relevant and funny it's still able to be. And, mm. you know, I think only doing 10 shows a year probably has a lot to do with that. You know what I mean? They're not mm. trying to churn out too many. But uh, in any case, um, that's just a, a, just a, a final thought there on that. But uh, right. considering that we've uh, spoken for well more than an hour and a half, I feel like we could do a lot more. But uh, mm. we'll just have to talk again at some point. And uh, I, yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if you have that as an option. I'd love to do one of those uh, South Park uh, after shows. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, the time difference won't be great for you because oh, we... Right. What time is it? Well... We don't, need to, we don't need to use logistics on your podcast. Yeah, that's true. Well, but, you know, <laughs> it, it does... Yeah, I think we do it at 10 o'clock uh, Pacific time. But that's right. We can always figure out something uh, okay. to, to do about that. You know, we've uh, ostensibly been talking about the Comedy Studies Reader, and if you've mm-hmm. enjoyed the conversation... And uh, Nick and Matt Sinkowitz. That's right. You got it. Okay. I got it. Uh, 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 Put that together. And uh, it's, for me, it's, it's fun to flip through and, and, you know, different things catch my eye. Uh, I think it being sort of a, not exactly a textbook, but kind of a, a scholarly book, it's not like something that you read from cover to cover, but there's a lot of interesting things in there, including the conversation we had about uh, SNL post 9-11. That was a piece that you wrote that's right. in the book. In any case, is there anywhere else you want people to be able to keep in touch with you? Do you do social media or is that uh, not uh, I, worth I, I the do. headache? I, I do. Well, I, I don't, I do. I am, I, I pick, I pick my spots though. And that, that could be another discussion as to the, uh, the, the, the pitfalls of that yeah. um uh can i do a book giveaway absolutely all right so um uh, follow me on twitter i'm at media studied um and uh i don't know tweet me your your favorite uh, office character or oh, something there you go. about comedy and uh and uh if i get just like one or two i'll send everybody a book if i get a few more than that then i'll have to do some sort of randomizer um but uh happy to happy to do that uh so it's at media studied and uh yeah just say hello let me know you heard me on the show and i'll either uh, like I said, I'll get you a book if there's not too many. If there's a few more, I'll have to randomize. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Matt, I really appreciate you taking the time, and I've just followed you on Twitter. So now Ooh. I, wow. I'm gonna. I already have a book that I got for free, so I'm not gonna try and take one of these other ones <laughs> from people. But uh, I do really appreciate you taking so much time at you know to be able to speak about something like comedy in an intellectual way is always kind of fun to me because you know you're talking about silly things like you know just to isolate one of my favorite things from the conversation, of course, to is the driving cat. When you can talk about stuff like that on an intellectual level, that and being able to speak about comic books I read when I was seven and eight in an intellectual level is uh, one of the reasons why I love podcasting. Yeah, you know? you've made it, right? That's the dream. <laughs> That's the dream, is to be able to talk about it. The dream is to get be, paid for it, but, uh, you know... The, 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 dream is to, the dream is to be stuck in the stuff you loved when you were eight years right. old and paid for it. That's not too bad. Yeah, exactly. That That is definitely it. Well, uh, Matt, thank you so much. Uh, we will uh, keep in touch and... Uh, Please keep in touch with me, obviously. Anything that uh, comes to mind that uh, you think would be uh, interesting to uh, talk about, we'll uh, be happy to have you back in the future. Uh, That's all the time we have for now, though, and we will see you next time on The Blackcast.
would it be pronounced Sinkevich or? <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's it's a matter of great dispute. Uh, Sinkowitz is Sinkowitz. the dumb, okay. dumb American there's, version. Because there's a there's a comic book artist with that last name. And, yes, uh, yes, yeah, that, Bill. Bill Sinkevich, and, and I was uh, corrected, not by him, but uh, I was saying Sankevich, and it's apparently Sinkevich. So, well, you're all wrong. Yeah, apparently, it is, uh, it is it is Shenkevich. Shenkevich. So there is a, a Nobel Prize winning uh, turn of the century Polish author named Henryk Shenkevich. Right. And so his name is said Shenkevich. So it's like, uh, you know, uh, it's Shakespeare, not Shakespeare or whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, uh, those of us who are, you know, generations down the line from there uh, have mostly mostly dumbed it to other versions. M- mine is perhaps the dumbest of Sinkowitz. Sinkowitz. That, I mean, yeah, as they go, it's uh, well, it's it, it's so unhelpful too. It's it's just a trap, right? Yeah. Like you, you you will you will spell it if you give Shenkiewicz, it's like Shashevsky. People yeah. just like stare and, and they will not try. <laughs> they will not put any letters down. Yeah. If you say Sinkowitz, you get S I N K O W T Z or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's worse than nothing. It's, I should just grunt. Yeah, well, I think that would spell that. Well, and then I'll, I'll put all this at the end of the episode because it's fun for me. Anyway. Sure, sure. That's fine. All right, so we'll start right now. Take or leave it if I please. 